Good morning. It is a joy to be with you today, and I'm grateful for the privilege of being here. I was looking at my preaching calendar, and um, it was almost 10 years ago to the day that I was that I was here with you guys last. So uh, I, I always thought, uh, think, you know, 10 years passes faster than it used to. <laughs> so, so it's a joy to be with you. This morning, we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, one of the most beloved of, of all texts of all times. And let me read it to us together. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Many of you can quote big pieces of this. And the story goes like this. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by to the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the young scribe said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. After all these years of raising children and marrying them and now raising grandchildren, I'm back into children's television again. The grandkids like to come over and I like to watch the old syndicated shows that I used to watch when their mothers were my daughters. And so we watch Sesame Street. Now, Sesame Street hasn't changed a whole lot from, uh, from those days. Uh, still running strong. The adults on the program have gotten a little bit older than they were then. Oscar is still a grouch. Um, the Count still loves to count things. And Cookie Monster seems to have picked up a few pounds from all of the cookies that he's consumed across the decades. And what I love about it is they're still singing some of those great old songs. My favorite, and you know it well too, Oh, who are the people in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood. Yeah, you can sing along if you want to. In your neighborhood. Oh, who are the people in your neighborhood? The people that you meet each day. And then they begin to introduce the different people in the neighborhood. Uh, oh, the mailman is a person in your neighborhood. Oh, the grocery man. And then they've, you know, they've gotten gender specific now, so they have a male woman 
in your neighborhood and, uh, you know, all other kinds of people that come and go. They're, they're trying to teach children this sense of who belongs here in the neighborhood where I live. Uh, the next show that I'll watch with them is in syndication now following the passing of Fred Rogers quite a while ago now. Mr. Rogers, neighborhood. And he is also interested in neighbors. He welcomes people into his tiny bungalow and they have conversations together. And, and we learn the ease in which these people come and go into his life. We meet all these kinds of people. And at the end, he asks the question, won't you be, won't you be, oh, please, won't you be my neighbor? Ah, back when cell phones became popular and they had all the first plans, I, I remember my daughter who was in college at that time explaining to me why her cell phone uh, bill was so big. She said, she said, now dad, Verizon has this plan. It's called the end plan. And she said, I'll explain it to you. She was a college student at that time and she knew everything. So, so she's explaining to me that you can call these people and they are in your cell phone neighborhood and it's free to call them. But if you call people outside your cell phone neighborhood, you have to pay more money to talk to them because they're not on the end plan that you're in on. It's cell phones that are interested in neighborhoods. Yesterday, I spent the day reading a, a wonderful book that I would highly recommend called Restless Devices. It's about these, Restless Devices. And from that time, when we first were figuring out implants and cell phone services, from that time to this, they have mastered the art of creating for us on the World Wide Web a very small neighborhood. The algorithms work in this way. They know what you watch and don't watch. They know what you click on and don't click on. They know what you scroll past and what you stop for. And they place a, a numerical value on it of algorithms. And these algorithms then begin to feed your cell phone with things that you are interested in, people you want to follow, people that you are interested in, causes that matter to you, products that that you actually like. I'm even convinced that they listen to us because my wife and I were having a conversation not long ago about a trip to Canada. And I mean, within hours, we started getting all of these ads about Canada uh, on, on our cell phone. Th this, this sense that these devices, these restless devices that occupy us far too much, that they have become for us a neighborhood of the things we're interested in. I always thought that this connected me to the whole wide world, but it really doesn't. What does, it creates a very tiny neighborhood in which I feel very comfortable, and it reinforces everything that I like and want and approve. And it brings it right to my doorstep, and it lets me live inside the echo chamber of this little world that is there. That is interesting. Children's television, interested about neighbors. Mr. Rogers, interested about neighbors. Cell phones and algorithms interested in neighbors. And do you know that the people of God have always been interested in neighbors? Because there was a time when they had none. There was a time when the people of God were strangers and aliens in Pharaoh's Egypt. And they were trampling mud into straw pits. And there they were making bricks to build Pharaoh's empire. And they were slaves. And there was no little Egyptian child going around singing, oh, an Israelite is a person in the neighborhood. No one cared. And they 
they cried and they cried out to God and God heard their cries. I love that description of God, the God who hears us when we cry. And God began to treat them in a neighborly way. He brought them through the plagues out of Egypt and across the sea, through the wilderness and into a new home. And when he came to the holy mountain to give them the law, there in Deuteronomy, God said to them something very specific. When the stranger and alien comes within your gate, I want you to treat them as neighbors because you were once strangers and aliens in Egypt and I treated you as a neighbor. I want you to be a neighbor to them like I was to you. I love this picture. So God reaches down and helps them. A neighborly God creates a neighborly people. Love a stranger because you were a stranger. Have you ever been a stranger? Have you ever been in a place where you just really, really felt like a stranger? I, I remember my first trip to Moscow. Church of the Nazarene had opened its work there in Moscow, and they had asked me to go and teach the first generation of, of our Russian converts how to preach. So I got on a huge American Airlines jet headed to Moscow. And, um, you know, I was a child who grew up in the days where we practiced getting under our school desk in, in case a nuclear bomb was dropped on us uh, by the Russians. I lived through the Cold War. I had been taught to be very suspicious of these people, these evil people. And here I am. I'm headed to Moscow to teach Russian converts how to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I remember getting off the plane and walking into the least friendly airport I've ever ever been in in my life. Huge stone walls with barbed wire, barbed wire at the top of them. Uh, people with scowls on their faces holding semi-automatic weapons. I remembered walking up to the passport desk and there was a woman sitting on a stool behind it and the, the plate glass on that thing had to be this thick and a little hole at the bottom that you were trying to talk through. And she's barking out orders to me in Russian that I have no clue what she's saying. And I slide my my passport underneath and she looks at it and barks something out and I say to her I'm sorry I can't understand and she scowls and says a few more things and then stamps the passport and slides it there and points me that way I go a little further and I have my suitcase with me I put it up on the table and they just dump it out upside down and you know just kind of fling it everywhere and now I'm and then they walk off and I'm left putting it all back together again and and I think okay, I'm almost, I'm almost through this, almost through. I made my way on out of security into the place where people were picking up the guests who had come. And there was a Russian young man named Misha that was to pick me up. And, uh, and he was, and I was fully instructed in it. They said, he'll be holding a sign that has your name in English on it. And just look and you'll see him there and he'll, and he will bring you to the Dachas uh, where we're having our classes. And so I got out there and there was just kind of a semicircle of a room. So I started on this side just looking and I'm just looking at all the people, several of them holding signs. And I look and I look and I come all the way to the other side of the room. Nothing that looked like Dan Boone. So I look back over here again. I thought, well, maybe I missed him or he's in a back row or something. And, and I read all the way around the room, nothing. And I thought, well, he, he's probably a few minutes late. So I took my suitcase, went over and I sat down in the waiting area so that I could sort of watch and see anyone else who would come in. 
I waited 15 minutes, no Misha. I waited 30 minutes, no one holding a sign with my name on it. And suddenly it began to sink in on me. I don't know the language. I don't have a phone number. I don't know how to use their phone system if I did. I don't have any Russian currency with me for a taxi. I don't have an address of the place to which we are going. Hmm. And I sat there 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. And as I'm sitting there just thinking about the experiencing I'm having, the Holy Spirit came and sat down beside me and we began to have a conversation. And the Spirit of the Lord said, do you see how you feel right now? Do you know what it feels like to be where you are right now? And I thought, yes, I do. This is an odd feeling. I, I've rarely been in places like this. And it was, was if God said to me, don't ever forget what this feels like, because this is what it feels like to be an immigrant coming to a new country. It's what it feels like to be an elderly couple um, trying to make ends meet, sitting across the table from a banker. This is what it feels like to be a fifth grader who's moved halfway across the country because mom or dad have a new job and they're in the middle of the school year and they're sitting in a class and they don't know anyone. This is what it feels like when you're sitting in a doctor's office and there's a diagnosis about to be given to you that may alter the trajectory of your life. This is what that feels like. Don't ever forget what it feels like to be a stranger in a place or a situation. This is so easy for us to forget because we live in our towns. We live in our neighborhoods. We have our schools. We have our churches. We gate ourselves in and secure ourselves and protect ourselves in every way. And we hope that the big bad world out there will leave us alone. We forget. And God's people forget. God. Because from the time God gave them that holy law there in Deuteronomy about welcoming the stranger, by the time we get to the New Testament story I read a few moments ago, God's people have now made laws and interpreted those laws to keep certain people out. Jews here, Gentiles over here. Clean here, unclean over here. Pure here, impure over here. These professions here, these professions over there. And they had mastered the art of figuring out a way to say these are welcome neighbors and these are strangers where we are. And then one day a young Jewish scribe comes along and he asks Jesus the question that we're so interested in. He, he says to him, Rabbi, tell me what I need to do to have life that is full and rich and complete and abundant. Tell me how to live the kind of life that is really worth living. And Jesus being the rabbi, the teacher that he was, answers the question with with a question. And he says, how do you read the law? Tell me what it is that you see when you open the commandments that are there. And the man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus, the teacher rabbi says, you get an A. That is exactly the right answer. Do this and you will live. But then the next verse is where the story begins to get in trouble. Because Jesus had affirmed his answer, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, given him the thumbs up, and this guy was good to go. But the text says, but wanting to justify himself, he said, and who is my neighbor? Now this word justify is the word that we use for balancing our checkbook. It's a word that means 
means to take uh, columns of figures and to add them or subtract them correctly. In other words, this guy wanted to calculate and quantify to the cent exactly who is my, who do I have to love as the neighbor that I have? It's an accounting term. How far, he says, does this neighbor thing go? So we've got this story that's happening in real time with Jesus, this rich young scribe. He has youth, wealth, and position. He has all of this power, and he's standing there within his Jewishness asking Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? This time Jesus answers his question with a parable. It is that good Samaritan parable. The parable begins, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's all we get, a certain man. We're told nothing about this guy, but on a 17-mile uh, stretch of bad road, he is beaten, robbed, and left to die in a ditch. But we're given, Jesus in the story gives us no clues about who he, are, who he is. We don't know if he's Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, black or white, citizen or immigrant, red state or blue state. We don't know if he's gay or straight. We don't know if he's vaccinated or unvaccinated. We don't know if he's Baptist or Nazarene. We don't know if he pulls for Alabama or Tennessee. We don't know anything about this man. All it says is a certain man. Now, I'm here wanting an indicator. You know, if, if I'm going to make the determination or whether the guy that's in the ditch is my neighbor or not. I, I want to see something about him. Uh, maybe there's a Bible kind of hanging out of his backpack, and I see that and I go, oh, that, that, that's one of ours. I got to go help him. Or there's a USA flag on his blue jean uh, patch pocket, you know, just, you know, the red, white, and blue. That's one of our guys. Or he's wearing a Trebekah sweatshirt. Man, I'm going to pull over on that one really fast. Or there's a Christian bumper sticker on the rear of his day's camel that says, meet me in Sunday school, Church of the Nazarene. But we get nothing. This, this man in the ditch is a foil. A foil in literature is a character in a story who has no lines, really doesn't do anything or say anything. But this particular character reveals things about other characters by the way that they react to him. And the guy in the ditch is a literary foil. Now, remember, our rich young scribe is still standing there asking Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? And the question begins, becomes, is the man in the ditch my neighbor? You know the story. The priest comes, sees the guy, crosses to the other side, goes on by. The Levite comes, sees the guy, crosses to the other side, goes on by. I, I've read the commentaries about this, and there are two dominant answers for why they did this. One of them is they're on the way to Jerusalem to do holy work and to touch a bloody man who might well be a Gentile or a pagan or a pig tender or a tax collector, whatever, would defile them, and they wouldn't be able to carry out their holy duty down at the temple. The other answer is this is a common trick. I've been on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho before, and it has a lot of twists and turns. It's a very common road for robbers to, to, to just catch people and beat them up. And one of the ploys is that one of the robbers will play possum there in the ditch, like he's the guy who's really in trouble. And the moment you go over and bend over to help the guy, he's got his buddies back in the rocks and they're on top of you, and you're now the one who's bleeding in the ditch. I I, I get this. I mean, there are reasons to be careful. And there are reasons to make sure we can do what we're headed to do. 
in Nashville, where I get off the interstate to go to Trevecca for work, he's always sitting there right at the top of the exit ramp. Um, he's got a very interesting assortment of signs that he holds. He's a veteran of every war that's ever been fought. Uh, you know, like World War One, World War Two, Korean War, Vietnam War. I mean, he, Iraq. He's he's fought in them all, apparently, because he holds a different sign most of the time. Uh, he has relatives that are sick in another state, all over the place. That's there. Uh, he he's hungry. One day his right leg isn't working. The next day it's his left leg that's not working. I mean, he's a guy who's mastered the art of sitting there at the top. Of the, of the ramp and begging from all of those who come by. Um, I've begun to roll my window down and talk to him and we have conversations. Every once in a while, uh, I'll have a bottle of water or an apple with me or sometimes McDonald coupons, something like that uh, to just to give to him. But there are days I don't want to be bothered. There are just days I, I just, you know. And so what I do is I'm pulling up the ramp. He knows my car. As I'm pulling up the ramp is instead of looking over there where he is, I'll, I'll just look down like, you know, I'm getting a CD out here to put in here. Or I'm putting my coffee down somewhere. Or I, I'm grabbing my cell phone for something because I know that if my eyes meet his eyes, something happens between us that obligates me. But long as I'm down here not looking, and I think that's why the priest and the Levite saw him and crossed to the other side and went on. Because if we don't behold people in ditches, somehow we don't feel as responsible to stop and help them and do something that's there. We live in a world of people who try to divert our gaze from the people in ditches because if we see them, something about the neighborly God begins to rise up in us and recognize there's a stranger in the ditch. Well, Jesus tells a story. The first one came, saw, crossed to the other side. The second one came, saw... Okay, we, we've had a priest and a Levite, and these stories in New Testament days, these stories always had three people in them. And it was common in literature, the first two did the wrong thing, and the third one is the hero. So we've had the priest, and we've had the Levite, and now here is the young, rich scribe who is listening to the story, and he's beginning to go, I'm next. Priest, Levite, scribe, I'm, I'm the next one in the story. And you know, his chest is beginning to sway. He knows he'll be the hero of this story because he's in the third position. And then Jesus says, and along came a Samaritan. And if you listen very closely to the text, you'll hear the scribe muttering under his breath. What? A Samaritan? <laughs> a half-breed, two-bit, theologically inept, redneck, pile of junk, black sheep, worthless Samaritan? Now, I know it doesn't say that in the text, but that's how we're supposed to feel about this particular text. I know it's editing a little bit, but Luke has actually set us up to feel this way about Samaritans because just a chapter before Jesus was passing through Samaria and he needed a hotel and a place to eat. And they said, we don't want your kind around here. You can just keep on going. And the disciples who were with Jesus had said to Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven on these Samaritans and deep fry the whole bunch of them? And Jesus said, no, that's not not the way that we will treat them. The Jews had decided that Samaritans weren't in the neighborhood. Therefore, we don't have to love them or help them or spend money on them or go to them. 
The way the parable is told, we get this sense of pacing. The priest comes, sees, crosses by, goes on. Levite comes, sees, crosses, goes on. And then the text just slows down. I mean, it just slows down to a crawl. He came near, the Samaritan did. And when he saw the man in the ditch, he was moved with pity. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, having poured oil on them to soften them and wine to disinfect his wounds. He picked him up. He put him on his own animal. He brought him to the inn, checked him in, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. You realize he stayed with this guy overnight to see how he's doing. He takes out two denarii and gives it to the innkeeper and says, take care of him. You know me. When I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. I've been asking myself, what is the basic difference between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan? I've kind of decided it's this. The priest and the Levite were looking for something about the man in the ditch, that man's identity, that would tell them to help him. And the Samaritan looked for something in his own heart that told him to help him. And when he looked into his own heart, he discovered there the compassion of God at work. You, are, you and I are now living in a world that has mastered what's called identity politics, that everyone has their labels. Our cell phones help us do that. They can figure out what our labels are for us. And if we can put a label on a person, we can then decide whether they're in our tribe or not in our tribe, whether we like them or we don't like them, whether they fit or they don't fit, whether we're for them or against them, whether we would help them in a ditch or walk on by. Our world has mastered dividing us into all of these separated, enemy-centered identity groups. And there's almost no one left in the world who will love everyone simply because they're a human being and that God has called us to love one another in that way. I grew up in a home that it's taken me 70 years now to figure out how radical that home was. Mom would drive into the poorest trailer courts of our little town. Dad would take food into what was called the colored section of Macomb. And there they would serve and help people in ways that today just amaze me. No concern for safety or not. No concern about what anybody else would say or think about it. I passed a church on the way up and driving here this morning, I prayed for all the people in all the churches along the way that we're gathering today. But I passed a church with a ratty old van sitting out front. I mean, it just really looked bad. And I found myself thinking, I bet some dear soul is going to go pick up a van load of kids in a poor section of this community and going to haul them to church today. And I found myself saying, God bless whoever's driving that van and those children that get on that van today. Help them in every way. I love belonging to the people of God who when they see people in ditches, they don't have to figure out, is that somebody we're allowed to help or not? Is that somebody we've decided we like or not? We just see the person in the ditch and figure out how, how to go help them in that way. The question the man asked was a question that Jesus never answered. He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus never answered that question. Jesus ended his parable by saying, who was a neighbor to the man who was in the ditch? And the young scribe sheepishly bowed his head and mumbled, the one who showed him mercy. There are people in ditches all over Aaron, all kind of ditches, all kind of reasons. They've been beaten up. They're bleeding. They're hurting. Their life is a mess. We don't even know a lot about them, but they're all asking the same question. And the question is simply this, who is my neighbor? And I found myself wondering this morning, could I give them your name?
Let's pray. God, the life that we are living takes us all kinds of places. And the one thing no community is short on in the whole world today is people who have been beaten up and left in ditches. Some of them are rich and some of them are poor. Some of them are black, some are white. They, are, they fit every category of humanity there is. But something has happened to them living in a hard world that has left them broken and fractured in great need of mercy, compassion, wisdom, forgiveness, help. And you are the Christ who walks the dusty roads of the world as the body of Christ. And we are your presence in all of those places. And as the people that we encounter are wondering, if there's anybody that sees them as a neighbor, would you guide us to be the kind of people whose hearts are so full of your compassion that you could simply say to us, that's your neighbor. And that we would find in the act of the Samaritan a pattern to live our lives by for the sake of the people whom Christ died for in all the ditches of the world. We we offer this prayer humbly, without shame, without any sense of trying to make us feel bad, but with a sense of us who've gathered under your name and in your house today, recognizing that we have the unbelievable privilege of being your presence in a world of great need. So guide us from this time of worship today, and may our lives in these coming days rise as praise to you and help us to be found with hands a little bit more dirty. <laughs> a wallet a little bit lighter, an obligation on a calendar that costs us some time. Help us to be found in the middle of broken humanity in a way that puts a smile on your face. If you would do that for us, with us, and through us, it would cause us to have great joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.